Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, March 26, 2017. The share IDs for Friday, March 24th are for the 7 a.m. Eastern meeting, 9761, and for 10 a.m. Eastern, 9762. Today, A Vision for You presents Working the 15 Steps. A few years after AA's birth in 1935, Bill W., Dr. Bob, and other early members worked out a set of suggested guidelines to help the newly sober man or woman. It was clear that bare sobriety wasn't enough. Drunks needed a program of recovery, a way to deal with the fear, self-pity, lack of faith, and resentment that led back to drinking. The suggested steps became that program and the bedrock of the new fellowship, helping millions of people to recover. The same process gives, gives compulsive overeaters freedom from the bondage of food. The program of recovery is contained in the big book, a textbook with a precise set of suggestions for working each step. The sole purpose of this step work is to find power through the experience of a spiritual awakening. The journey to recovery is sometimes full of bumps and detours, but also new ideas, perspectives, and surprising insights. This is an ongoing process, and the results of it appear, as the big book says, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. After all, recovery is the adventure of a lifetime, and it begins the moment we ask for help. Joining us this morning to speak on these transformative steps is John Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from Los Angeles. John is dedicated to carrying this message of recovery, frequently leading workshops and retreats, and intensively working with other compulsive overeaters. And welcome to the line this morning, John Kay. Good morning, Leah. Am I heard okay? Very well. Thank you. Good morning, folks. My name is John Kiernan. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from the Los Angeles area, originally from New York, so hi to my East Coast peeps. Um, I want to thank Leo for asking me uh, to do this this morning, and and also just to thank her for starting a vision for you. It's getting bigger and bigger on the West Coast. Uh, we are hoping to become as big as the East Coast group one of these days. Uh, it's really helping uh, recovery out here like you wouldn't believe. Um, so anyway, I came up with the title, Working the 15 Steps, uh, when I started thinking about how I go through the steps when I leave retreats. You know, first of all, okay, news flash, uh, there really are only 12 steps. <laughs> but while the idea of living in steps 11 and 12 are a blueprint for daily living, I would also contend that daily living also entails the constant reminder of steps 1, 2, and 3 as well. Now, Steps one, two, and three will work differently if you're new and trying to get abstinent or trying to get out of a relapse versus being in program and abstinent for a long time. And that's what this talk is about today. You know, when I talk about the steps in my retreats, I go through steps one through 12 and then back around to steps one, two, and three in a daily maintenance type of thinking. You know, so hence going through the steps and adding second go around to one to three and you get 15 steps. That's why we came up with the title. So let me first address dealing with the first three steps if 
you are trying to get abstinent for the first time or trying to get out of a relapse. Now, if you're trying to get out of a relapse, let me just say, uh, I suggest you go to the Vision for You website and listen to the special edition I did on relapse back in December 2015. I've been told by people it's helped them a lot. And to, frankly, it'll talk a lot more about relapse than <clears throat> I really have time to talk about today. But let's first look at people who are new to program and trying to get abstinent. Uh, you know, I, I think the steps, there's the steps themselves as they're written. But then I also think there's the real world short form <laughs> that I tell newcomers. You know, especially those who are having problem with the higher out, higher power aspect, or as I like to call it, the G word. <laughs> you know, I actually wrote an article with that title for an outside website a while back. You know, it's a, it's a big stumbling block for a lot of newcomers. You know, but the real world short form for steps one, two, and three, I think, is this. Step one, you've been trying to do this your whole life to conquer your food addiction, and it hasn't worked. <clears throat> as I was told in my first 12-step program by my first sponsor, your own best thinking, your own highest intellectual abilities got you where you were when you dragged yourself through the door the first time. These AA sponsors aren't always touchy-feely, but he was right, you know. So the point is, if you can't do it yourself, what's the answer? Well, step two is the answer, you know. Look around the rooms of the program. See all those people with more abstinence than you? Well, they are, at least compared to you, higher powers. And one of them is going to be your sponsor, which leads to step three. Go ask that person or some person or any person to be your sponsor. And then do as they tell you to do. You know, follow direction. That's a phrase I used to hear a lot more in program uh, when I was younger. You know, this is a program based on surrender. And after a lifetime of trying to do things your way, how about letting someone else, you know, in the driver's seat for a while? Because let's face it. After all, with you in the driver's seat, you put the car in the ditch. Yeah. You know, and what what it gets down to is that when I came in, my disease was in full bloom. You know, that meant it infected every neuron of my brain. I couldn't trust my own decision-making abilities. You know, not about everything, but definitely when it came to my food and my decisions about my food. You know, as someone here in, in L.A. says, you know, you can't fix a broken brain with a broken brain. And the key to surrender is total surrender. You know, my disease, when I was in relapse, always wanted to grab that program cliche, take what you want and leave the rest, you know, to convince me that I could use that in the area of my food. In other words, the cafeteria plan. You know, and compulsive over it is love cafeterias, but they just don't work when it comes to recovery. You know, let me tell you something in case you don't already know it. Take what you want and leave the rest is nowhere to be found, as far as I can know, in the program literature. You know, it's passed around in meetings as a way to not have to deal with surrender. You know, you can certainly take what you want and leave the rest. But if I had done that, I'd still be drinking, drugging, and eating. You know, so it's your choice. So anyway, that's the quick and dirty first three steps for absolute newcomers. You can't do it. Someone else can. Ask them how to do it and follow directions. Now, there isn't a lot of higher power in spirituality in that stuff, but I admit. But as I learned in my first program, first things first. These people, a lot of them are having trouble with a concept of higher power. Give them a real world grounded out path to work on the program and not run away. So, <clears throat> expounding on that, step one. You know, before program, I couldn't get the weight off to keep it off. You know, 
Uh, if you looked at a chart of my weight, it looked like a really good stock. You know, if you if you were an investor, you know, it, up and down and up and down, but mainly going up. And that was with me. Always, always I'd go on diets. I'd always come back with more weight, not less. You know, I really didn't go on diets. I set my weight out for reinforcements, you know. All of my brain power, all of my efforts never worked. And it took years to really get that. You know, it always felt like the answer was right around the next corner. But no, it wasn't. And that whole tomorrow mantra, you know, my disease would always tell me when it was trying to get me to pick up, oh, start again tomorrow. Well, you know, I go to meetings out here in L.A. It's wonderful. I go to meetings with lots of people with 20, 30, 40 years of abstinence. And you know what? Not one of them got abstinent on the tomorrow. They all got abstinent on today. And, um, you know, that's that's what I want. I, I, and the thing about, about abstinence, is, you know, there's this idea you've got to work at being abstinent. No, you've got to work on, on breaking your abstinence in a way. Everybody who's listening right now, chances are you're not eating. You know, and that, if you've been on a, a binge, on a relapse, you haven't been able to get it, right this second, you're abstinent. You'll have to make an active decision to change that. And that's one of the things my disease doesn't want to think about, doesn't want me to think about, I should say. You know, and it's so hard for compulsive eaters. I don't have to tell most of you. You know, the most frustrating thing is that out there, there's just so many people out there who can eat too much, can gain weight, and then go lose that extra weight, you know, but not me. I'm a true compulsive eater. And when finally getting that, it, there's such a relief, isn't there? You know, I mean, now I understood the problem. I was a compulsive overeater. I had a disease. I have a book. Now I need, I know what I need to do for the rest of my life, I said. I'll never compulsively overeat again. <laughs> well, guess what? You know, just like Bill in the book, I found myself beating on the bar asking how had it happened again. You know, why? Because the, the real shock to me is I couldn't study my way out of this disease. You know, all of my brain power, I can't study my way out. You know, and then I had to deal with relapse, which, in my opinion, is much harder. You know, I could talk for hours, and I do talk hours about recovery from relapse. I need workshops on it, weekend retreats, but, again, that's for another time. Again, listen to the December 15 special edition. But it all comes down to uh, if you're a compulsive eater and you've made food an option, it's always going to be the only option. Now, if you had a choice between going through something that's upsetting or eating some food that tastes good, you like, and will make you feel better, it's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer. But that's just the point. You know, we have a great old-timer out here named Carol who says, if it's not an option, it's not a problem. And, and he couldn't be more right. And that has to do with step one for newcomers. Uh, and, and then step two, you know, my own best efforts, you know. You know, finding that faith, you know, when I came into programs, you know, or back from relapse is pretty easy in a way if you open your mind to it. Just look around those rooms and see the group. There are many people who uh, are, aren't just getting to or gotten to a healthy body weight, but they're also happy and serene. You know, they've gotten better, not just thin. You know, they've found a way to live life on life's terms. And then I could contrast that with my own lifelong ability to achieve the same results. You know, and I also sometimes like to flip step two around and, and in reverse and sort of say, look, I was insane and I needed a higher power, some power greater than myself that could help me with my problem. 
And, he, and it's not easy because you're dealing with a broken brain. The previous problem with this insanity is it's subtle and it's very specific. You know, in many areas of my life, I had used my brain to accomplish lots of marvelous things, except in this one specific area, which was putting down my substances and keeping them down. Then I was insane. And when I say insane, I, I particularly like this one dictionary definition of insanity I heard years ago. It said that insanity is a state of mind that prevents normal perception. And that was the problem. I had spent my year, my life looking for an easier, softer way, you know? You know, if you told me I could hit the lottery every night, or if I get those Nigerian emails that tell me I've got five million waiting in the bank, I laugh, you know? But if I'm standing in line at the supermarket and I look over at TV's magazine covers that say, eat all you want and still lose weight, you know, there's a part of me that wants to go grab that article, even with all this time and program. Now, you know, I'm a smart person. I know how the laws of physiology work, yet my brain, my compulsive eater brain, it's, oh, look, easier, softer way, you know? And that's just it. My brain is the problem. Our brains are the problem. You know, and, and I can also look back at my life and know that part of my problem was also a reliance too much on intelligence and thinking while ignoring, you know, or suppressing emotions. You know, I've had, you know, therapists over the years, and, and they would, uh, I would talk about something and say, well, how do you feel? And I'd respond about how I thought. And they go, no, how do you feel? And I realized there's a part of me that has real, had real problems with that. So <clears throat> when I was in relapse, my disease would also use all these perfectly good program concepts again against me. And, and again, I could go on and on with the litany of that self-delusion that came with that specific form of insanity and relapse. But it all came down to one thing, in my opinion, during that relapse, which is that when I was in relapse, my disease got up every morning, just one thing to do that day, and that was to get me to kick the can down the road another day on actually putting the food down, you know. And uh, when it comes to a power greater than myself to help break that insanity. Again, starting with that lowest common denominator on the higher power, which let me, you know, address this to those who are atheist and agnostic. I always like to start this way and then we'll work our way up. Is that, you know, for those who are atheist, agnostic, or without a good formed concept of a higher power, or, you know, those who don't believe that the higher power they do believe in will relieve them of this disease, I always say working the steps does not require a belief in a formal higher power. It simply requires that I see myself as a lesser power and then to have faith in that process. You know, the key to recovery, I believe, is the 12-step process outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, it's not a matter of a conscious contact with a higher power. It is nice to have that, but I don't think it's required at least to start the process. You know, you may and hopefully will come to find a good defined higher power. But for now, put that on the back burner if you're an atheist or an agnostic, okay? And I'll tell you why. Because no matter what you may believe or not believe about a higher power, you probably believe it's been around since before 1935, right? Well, people were dying without hope of alcoholism until then. And of compulsive overeating until 1960. <clears throat> well, some of those people who died were members of the clergy. You know, in my 35 years in program, I have known priests, ministers, rabbis, nuns, cantors. You know, if, if 
Conscious contact with a higher power alone were all it took. They would never have had to be in this program. I believe absolutely to the core of my soul that the steps and the big book were my higher power's gift to the 20th century. You know, it's the rowboat they gave, that my higher power gave to get us to the shore of recovery. All we have to do is get in and row. You know, and it's the same thing with those priests, ministers, and rabbis had to do too. They had to get in the rowboat and row. You know, so if you're an atheist or agnostic or uh, I don't know what the heck to believe you guys call God and higher power, no problem. Now, I personally believe there's a thread from that rowboat to my higher power, but you don't have to believe in a higher power. You just need to believe in the rowboat. You know, the only faith you need to begin is the faith in this process of recovery. And as it says on page 45 in the big book, the aim of this process is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself that will solve your problem. Any, all anyone asks is to keep an open mind on the subject. <laughs> and, you know, many of you came in with a fully formed view and faith in a higher power, but thought God had better things to do than to help you with an insignificant, in the God's eye view of things, this insignificant food problem. You know, and I went through that phase. Like, like if God was helping me with my food pro- program problem here, it was going to take him away from stopping a war over there, you know. Well, you know, that's my extremely limited human thinking, you know, to think that. Well, I have a belief in today in a God and a higher power, and he's the ultimate multitasker. You know, if I can multitask and do things, and I believe in a higher power that's infinitely more than me, can I trust that this can happen, that this, you know, whatever this power is can help me with my problem? I certainly do today. Which then brings you to step three, you know, where reality and the theory meet, you know. Uh, and step three in the beginning, of, I, as I said before, meant taking direction. Because I believe when it comes to that second step, I'm a believer in the concept of higher powers, plural. You know, I believe in that grounded out view of higher power that most 12-step organizations suggest. Namely, God, myself, and another human being. You know, as it says in the AA 12 and 12, going it alone in spiritual matters is dangerous, you know. I don't believe I can rely solely on a higher power because I'm still interfacing with that higher power through this insane brain that has that perception problem. You know, and I can't tell when I'm trying to meditate whether the voice I'm hearing is the voice of my higher power or is it the voice of my disease just doing a really good impression of my higher power. You know, I always joke I can go to the mountaintop, you know, commune with God and come down convinced that God told me chocolate was a vegetable. But then when I talk to my sponsor, he's like, yeah, no, not today. I don't think so. Uh, and I'll tell you, when I first came in, and when I was, especially when I was coming out of relapse, I needed a sponsor way more than I needed a higher power. You know, now I know that my sponsor was a bridge to my higher power. But in the beginning, I needed to really have that. And for a long time I had, and excuse my language on this, I had something I call a bullshit sponsor. And what a bullshit sponsor was, is that the sponsor you get so that you can tell other people in meetings that you have a sponsor, but you never call them, you never work with them, you never do the steps with them. And that just didn't work for me, you know. This is not an independent study program as much as I would have loved it. I would have loved to, you know, just get all the literature, do it myself. Because I didn't really want a sponsor. Why? Because I didn't want to be accountable. 
I, I wanted to come in and audit this program. I want to buy that literature, go home, study it, because I've been able to do that with a lot of other things in my life. But you know what? I got the exact results you would expect from that, which is none. You know, and, and today I just see so much value in a sponsor. I always joke that some of the stupidest things that were ever said to me were said to me by a sponsor, okay? Now, what I mean by that is I'd be told to do something by a sponsor, and I would hang the phone up and look at the phone and go, well, that's the stupidest damn thing I ever heard. But, you know, I came from a program where they used to say, bitch and moan, but do it anyway, you know? And I got that really into my brain. So I would do this really stupid thing my sponsor wanted me to do. And after I did it, I looked backwards and go, God, that was exactly what I needed to do. And thank God I didn't filter it through this broken brain. And that's why sometimes just following direction, even though you think it's crazy, is exactly what you need to do. Because, you know, again, you know, nothing changes if nothing changes. You know, because I was the one that was crazy, so I needed to be willing to listen to somebody else. And if I really, as it says in how it works, if I'm really willing to go to anyone, I don't ask for help from a sponsor and then try to negotiate how that help will come. Now, this is especially true about my food and working out a food plan. At the very least, my sponsor helps give me objective help when it comes to the food, you know. And the other thing is that for me, it's like starting to have trust in a sponsor led me to the further connections with something more, a real higher power of my understanding, to sort of have that trust. Because when I came in, it was all just so confusing. I would hear that phrase, turn it over, turn it over. And I just, I couldn't get that. Wait, wait a minute. I would joke. I said, you know, if you turn something over twice, it's right side up again, you know. But I, I, I remember reading in the AA 12 and 12, and all of a sudden the light bulb went off on what turn it over meant for me. It, it, I turned it around and made it a little different. Instead of making it an active thing about turning it over, I made it more of a passive thing of saying, turn it over to me, removing the blockage of self-will. Get out of the way of life. Trust things are happening the way they're supposed to. And from there, moving through the steps was the key for me. I was able to clean out that garbage and guilt of my mind, you know, through the fourth and fifth step, you know. I tell my sponsees that fourth and fifth is not a dual step. There are two discrete steps, the fourth and the fifth. And I tell my sponsees, if you're doing a fourth, you're not allowed to think about who you're going to get that to. You just work on that fourth because the fourth is about getting that stuff out for you to look at. Then when you're done, you can decide what you want to do with the fifth step. Um, I did one with a therapist. People do it with their clergymen. But if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I, if, I, if I write this out, I'm going to have to talk to my sponsor about it. You're, you're censored. So I'm a real believer. <clears throat> and then I started looking in <clears throat> at the inner me and and my my demons and says, do the sixth step, you know, and uh, my character defects, which I don't like to call character defects. I like either character liabilities, uh, defense mechanisms. Uh, and I did, a, I did a whole talk on six and seven in an earlier Sunday edition. You want to listen to that. I was also able to see the fears beneath almost all of those uh, character defects, you know, because fear was the driving thing in my life. And again, there's another special edition I did all about fear behind those character defects, if you want to listen to it. Um, but then I asked for the help in removing those in step seven and then worked on my amends list, you know, using my fourth step as a guide. I always joke with people, so for, when I hear people say, I burned my fourth step, I'm like, well, hopefully you made a copy so you know who to make amends to, you know. <laughs> but then I did, I, and I've made a majority of my amends, 
you know, but, you know, guess what? It's a lifelong process, and it's really hard to make absolutely every one of them, but I keep trying. And from there, you know, I continue to live in steps 10, 11, and 12, you know, although I have continued to work through the steps over and over. Now, there's some people who say, oh, you should be able to just then stay 10, 11, 12. My personal opinion is that the onion keeps getting peeled, and I have done more than one fourth step because things, oh, oh, you remember things, or things because you've gotten better, things that you didn't even consider were bad, all of a sudden you realize, wow, that was really not good behavior, and it comes out over and over. Uh, so I have gone through the steps, but just in terms of daily living then, it brings you back to steps one, two, and three, especially for the people who've been around for a while. You know, what What do steps one, two, and three mean for those of us, you know, who are around and, and uh, you know, how are these first three steps involved in our lives on a daily basis? Well, okay, so I kept my higher power thing uh, pretty nebulous during the first part of this discussion, especially because I'm trying to explain to those who don't have good belief yet. Um, but this is because for many of us, this discovery of a higher power or the redefinition of the existing one we have, it's a constantly evolving situation. You know, and this is also true for seeing how this newly discovered higher power will, you know, as it, as it says on page 45, help us with our problem. Um, hopefully by the time you've gone through the steps at least once and you're working on some kind of a program of maintenance and ongoing improvement, you've, you've gotten the concept of how that higher power works in your life on a daily basis, you know. Um, the main thing, as I said previously, was getting the idea I was a lesser power. You know, that this meant also understanding I was human and full of human frailties and imperfections and always will be. You know, I think the goal of this program, other than keeping the food down, is to continue to keep working to minimize those, quote, human moments, or at least to learn from them. You know, <clears throat> I think it's that's so important. One upside to this accepting my humanity is that I quit beating myself up for falling short in these various areas. You know, I would read page 86, you know, where it talked about in step 10 about, you know, things like, were, you, were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Were we kind and loving toward all? What could we have done better? Were we think of, thinking of ourselves most of the time? You know, and I'd be reading that going, yep, yep, yep. And I would beat myself up for that. I'd go, oh, all these years in program, and I'm still doing these things sometimes. Well, you know, I needed to learn that all this direction in the big book concerns ideals, ideals toward which we strive, but we never get there totally because we're human. And when I quit being so judgmental towards myself, I quit being so judgmental about other people and accepted their humanity. You know? So in step one for me today on an ongoing basis, step one is involves the understanding that I am powerless over people, places, and things. And that my that life in general is unmanageable. In the concept of managing everything in my life, obviously there are a small amount of things which we're all powerful over and are manageable. But I got to tell you that number is a lot less than I ever wanted to admit. <laughs> you know, and I've also heard people flip that first step around and say I'm powerless over life and my food was unmanageable, which which I like. I was. But if you take all of this, all of program stuff, all the things that's taught in the big book, 
and all the stuff in the 12 and 12, and you boil it down to three phrases, I think it still just comes down to the serenity prayer, doesn't it? Accepting the things we can't change, having the courage to change the things we can't. And then, you know, the lifetime in program, in my opinion, is to get me to understand the, quote, wisdom to know the difference. I used to have an old sponsor who would, like, pinch the skin on his hand and go, Okay, kid, right there. That's that's your your difference, right there. Right? And what we meant was, he said, the difference is everything from the skin in things you can change. Everything from the skin out things you can't. You know, and the majority of my life comes down to accepting my very limited power in the world. It's all the whole key of my existence today is my reaction to these things over which I have no control. Now, you know what? That can be either depressing or liberating, depending on how you look at it. You know, but I, I, I was all about control when I came in. Because, you see, I grew up in a very unsafe environment. I had two alcoholic parents that I went back and forth with. And the thing is, uh, as a result of that, I spent my life then trying always to control things. Why? Because if I can control things, I'm safe. And that's what I felt. Control for me was about safety and security. But, you know, the funny thing is when you look at it really, most of the control issues, quote, unquote, are really illusions of control anyway, aren't they? You know, I've been working for myself since the early 80s. You know, uh, I went out, some of you know I used to be a stand-up comic. And I left, I used to work at a magazine, and I left and went out to become a stand-up comic and did that for a number of years. And then uh, I got into the computer business and I worked for myself. And, you know, I haven't had an actual paycheck since the early 80s. And I tell people that, and they're like, oh, I could never do that. I need the security of working for a company and, and getting a paycheck on a, on a weekly basis. That's, and I go, yeah, I can understand that. You want that security. You want the security of, like, walking into a big building that's, you know, a skyscraper, and it's in the middle of a city, and, and, and getting a paycheck every Friday. And, you know, there, there were people who did that, and they worked – for a company that was the number three company in the country. And it was called Enron. And you know what happened? One day those people came walking up to that big skyscraper in the middle of that city, and the door was locked because the company was gone. And that's when you realize that that security and that safety is really just an illusion of security and safety. And there's a lot of things like that in our life. Things can change in a second. Things can are not as secure as you really want to make them. And when you start thinking about that, that's a really scary thing, isn't it? Well, to me, that's right where the first step leads into the second step. Because without some kind of a faith, this is a scary, difficult world. You know, but on a less dire aspect, I also want to live a more happy life with my fellows, you know. Before program. Uh, I was so in self-centered, you know. I was so into I want things to go my way all the time. That's the way I, I you know, I got it. And that's a very immature attitude, you know. I live in a world with other people. You know, one of the most eye-opening things I ever read came from an Al-Anon piece of literature called The Checklist for Our Emotional Maturity. And it said in this one place, it said, a mature person accepts reasonable delays without impatience realizing that some adjustment for the convenience of others is necessary. Wow, that was like a mind blower for me. Wow, I never thought of that. If I want a green light, occasionally I've got to let other people have a green light 
and I got to have a red light. But to me, I wanted it my way all the time. You see, the thing is, I didn't get these lessons as a kid from my parents. You know, my parents not only didn't have a lot of good parenting skills, you know, they also didn't have a lot of good adulting skills. You know, they didn't have a way to teach me how to deal with life as an adult. And as a result, I didn't have it. And that's what program is here for me today. I became an adult in these rooms, you know. One of the favorite lines I ever heard was a, was a speaker who once said, you know, all I keep hearing is about people getting in touch with their inner child, you know. He said, I, I come to program to get in touch with my inner adult, you know, because that's what I need today. And... <clears throat> You know, the first step in terms of long, long-term long abstinence helps free me from that frustration. It helps find a way to contentment. You know, um, I stopped writing the backstory on every incident that didn't go my way with the thinking of it's not supposed to go that way. It's not supposed to be that way, which is a very frustrating thing in life. Now I know, yes, it is. It's exactly the way it's supposed to. Because Dr. Paul taught me nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. Now, I might not want to hear that sometimes, but it's true. And that whole thing with control is like, you know, change in others cannot be forced. I need to lead by example. And, and the program slogans that have helped me over the years, live and let live and let go and let God. You know, I, I can certainly say my piece when it comes to something that might be contentious and I have a, a belief as to how it goes. But then I step back and I accept what's going to happen. You know, W.C. Fields used to have a great line, you know, if at first you don't succeed, try again, but then stop. No use making a damn fool out of yourself. But, you know, why take that tack? Because when we truly get that we're powerless over people, places, and things, then we can focus our attention on ourselves. And when we do that, that's when things can really change. You know, that's the new pair of glasses Dr. Paul and Chuck C. talk about. And by doing that, we get even better. And then that becomes a positive feedback loop. You know, I've done a powerlessness inventory, the things that frustrate me in my life, and that I, what can I do about them? And that's an eye-opener when you do that, because you realize, again, how little control you have over these things that are frustrating. And at other times, you know, sometimes it's not about my self-centered desire to be right, but out of a genuine desire to help. But my job is to be there to offer assist, uh, assistance rather than force it on something. And, you know, I was told by a sponsor in another program once something that when I first heard it, I, I genuinely thought the person was being sarcastic. And he said, don't rob someone of the experience of making their own mistakes. Wow, you know, you gotta understand in my house growing up, mistakes were to be avoided at all costs. These were things of shame, these were things that invited ridicule from others. And the reality is no, this is it's just the price of being human. You know, I I heard someone say that her sponsor told her once about advice giving. I love this. That her sponsor said, Other pe people are not imperfect versions of you. <laughs> I just started laughing, boy, I could identify with that. And, and the other one I just recently, my, our friend Charles, posted on a board, are you doing God's work or God's job? And and that's an important one for me to remember. But having then, you know, gotten that concept of powerless over people, places, and things, like, you know, you go to step two. You know, through my time and program, I have 
personally come to believe in a higher power. You know, it is, it's the one as mentioned in the spiritual experience. You know, mine wasn't the thunderbolt moment that Bill had, but it was of that educational variety. Now, I've got to tell you, I've seen too many coincidences in this program. You know, the program itself came into being by what I call God's chess match. You know, you take somebody who's seeing a psychiatrist in Switzerland and then comes to New York City, influences somebody there who later goes up to Vermont, who then comes back down with somebody else from Vermont who seeks out his childhood friend in Brooklyn, who then later meets up with a doctor in Akron, Ohio. I mean, come on. Care to calculate the odds on all that? You know, that, you know my higher, higher power today is not one of my childhood. You know, not one of the ones the one given to me by my parents. You know, in other words, not the one of the religion of my birth. It is instead one of my own understanding. And it certainly had to be a lot more benevolent and loving, or more importantly, one that is a lot more personal to me than the one I was given. One of my favorite quotes I heard at a meeting once was was a speaker who was an ex-priest who said, you know, I had I had to hit 60 years of age and join AA before I realized I could pray to God without going through Rome, <laughs> which just cracked me up. Uh, and when I'm asked at retreats about whether I have like specific times of the day that I pray and meditate, you know, I say not really. You know, I do try and do that a bit in the morning, you know, as mentioned in 86, the book of when we start the day. But I also have this innate belief that my higher power is integrated in me throughout my day. You know, I mean, to quote the spiritual experience again, you know, I have tapped into that inner resource, our more religious members call God consciousness. And, and trust me, I need it. <laughs> again, you know, I, or rather my character defects, let me know that I have a mind that prevents normal perception. In other words, I need help. And while a lot of this does come through working steps 10, 11, and 12 daily, I think there's also a need to continually be looking at these first two steps. I also believe, by the way, the most important word in the steps for me is the word only in the 11th step, praying only for knowledge, his will, and the power to carry it out. It's my job to fit myself in the world, not the other way around. And of course, you know, the acceptance paragraph on page 417 does a much better job of saying that than I could. But, you know, previously, my God could be more like in a Santa Claus when I came in. You know, I would demand these things. I need this list of things before I'm going to have a belief. Well, now, with that only, I can say I know. I only hope I can accept things exactly the way they are, you know. And it's also why I, I personally, it's a personal opinion here, I personally don't believe in intercessory prayer. You know, I, I've been in a meeting where somebody will say, oh, well, I'm up for a job, pray that I get it. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to pray that you get that job. What if that job is the worst job, turns out to be the worst job you've ever had in your life? And by having taken that job, you missed the interview next week that would have gotten you the job of your dream. You know, I mean, I certainly don't know what's right for me, so I don't know, definitely don't know what's right for you. It's more of a feeling of I will not mind be done. And if I can accept that, it helps if faith, you know, removes so many of these fears in my life. You know, I remember on my last fourth step, I think I only had about four fears written down, you know, and death wasn't even one of them. And and, uh, why, you know, Adwell got to step three, I had turned my will and my life over. You know, and it wasn't even a totally conscious thing. Although I, I had said it a lot, but more 
like everything you guys have been telling me over and over, finally sunk in. And that's the thing is that in my belief, the third step is integrating that realization of my true powerless over so many things in my life with my belief in some kind of a higher power. In other words, I'm powerless over here. I got that higher power over there. Let's see if we can get these two together into step three. And when I was new to the program, you know, I was so desperate to figure out exactly what I believed in a higher power. You know, I don't anymore. My higher power doesn't require me to understand him or her. It just needs me to accept what he is. You know, because I ate over what was eating me. And when I realized that was just me trying to fill that God-shaped hole. And when I finally got it, uh, you know, I also realized I couldn't think my way into it. You know, somebody once said, I love the phrase, God can't be understood with the head. It can only be felt with the heart. You know, I don't personally have a higher power that is in any kind of form like a person. It's more like the universe and its machinations. At the end of the day, my bottom line belief is everything is happening just the way it's supposed to. You know, God's in his place, all's right with the world. And once I really got that concept, the idea of turning my life over was a lot easier. Again, just removing the self-will. I'm simply saying to myself, okay, get in line with the universe. Quit trying to pound the universe into what you want it to be and the world and other people, you know. Thankfully, there, there's much validation for this concept in the big book, you know. The, the last two stories in the big book are two of my favorites. They're entitled Freedom from Bondage and AA Taught him to handle sobriety. And if you haven't read those in a while, I suggest you read them, including, and also Dr. Paul's on acceptance. But in that last story, he says, quote, we are taught to differentiate our wants, which are never satisfied, and our needs, which are always provided for. Now it's on page 560. And in looking back at my life and thinking of all the things I had been fearful about at one time or another, I realized almost none of those ever came true. You know, with things the way I wanted them to be every time? No. But in looking back, my needs were met. I'll tell you a funny thing. Like, there's this one Bugs Bunny cartoon. For those of you old enough and watched Bugs Bunny cartoons growing up, uh, Bugs wakes up one day and they're building a building over his hole. He ends up going up on this building that's not, you know, it's still in construction and it's nothing but girders. And he finds himself way up on this high-rise building that's nothing but girders. And, he, you know, he's up on these girders in one wrong step and he's gone. And just then he gets senseless on the head with something. And he ends up stumbling along this girder, not even aware of where he is anymore. And he just continues to stumble and he steps off the end of the building. And just then another girder being hauled on a rope is there and he steps onto it. And he continues to walk along that single girder. And just as he gets to the end of that, the girder aligns up with the next floor of the building and he steps off on that and he's safe in that. Well, I know that sounds like a weird way to come up with a higher power, but that's how I feel my higher powers worked in my life. You know, things have always worked out. And once I got that understanding, you know, I spent a lot less time worrying about things in the future. You know, coming from my uncertain world that I had in my youth, I was constantly on guard against everything. You know, I went through life in a defensive crouch. I was always trying to play out the chess game of life 30 moves ahead. And, and, and then I was always projecting these out to the worst possible conclusion so then I could consider how I was going to handle it. 
But you know, the most ironic thing is that that actually didn't make my life any better. You know, it didn't cause any less bad things to happen to me. It just always left me waiting for the other shoe to drop. It was constantly traumatizing. Now, why did I do that? It was really simple, okay? It came down to this. I had mistaken worrying about a problem as being the same as doing something about it. What has changed in me now is that I have some faith. Is it a faith in a higher power or anything like the God of my late youth? No, no, I'm not even close. But it's not, and it's nothing like many of the religions believe. It's simply everything's going to be all right. And what a liberating feeling once you get to believe that everything's going to be all right. You know, a conscious contact is something we come to feel, you know, as opposed to some religious doctrine that's said to us. Now, Sometimes those two things can be congruent. I'm not talking down if you have the you know the church or faith of your your childhood has worked within the recovery. Absolutely great. But I'll give you an example. My mother stopped drinking about 30 years before she died and went to AA for a while, but never really worked the steps. You know, and I don't think she ever found a real conscious contact with a higher power, even though she ended up going back to her church. You know. And I kept trying to get her to come out to L.A. for a visit, and she was afraid to fly. And I would kid her. Well, you got this supposed faith and religion, and you're afraid to fly. You know, fear is the opposite of faith. And she said to me, so you're not afraid to fly because you think God will protect you from a plane crash? <laughs> and I laughed. I went, Mom, I live a block from Santa Monica Airport. If God wants me to die in a plane crash, he'll bring the plane to me while I'm sleeping, you know? <laughs> Part of what also helped me with an understanding of a higher power and, and a belief in how it integrates into my life is I'll never know the big picture. You know, I'm never going to be able to understand things the way a higher power might see things. I can't fathom things through these human eyes that's then going through this tiny human brain. You know, if I start asking why about all the things in life, it'll only drive me crazy. And it'll also have me questioning an existence in a higher power at all. Because I remember coming in the program and asking, talking to my first sponsor about these deep philosophical questions, like how can there be a God if there's a Holocaust and all things like that. And I had a load of, he, he would just look at me and go, well, if you understood that, you'd be God, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, boy, that drove me crazy. But at the end of the day, he was right. You know, I also had to stop asking why so much in general. I've come to believe why is one of the most useless questions and words in the universe. Because if you're asking why about something that's happened, you obviously don't like whatever it's related to. So if you get your why answered exactly the way you want to, which is about 0.0001% of the time, you're right back where you started, right? And when you don't get it answered the way you want, you're frustrated. So I found losing the word why when it comes to situations and then just dealing with whatever needs to be done it leads to a much calmer way of life. And again, I don't have to have the big picture. I don't even have to like it. I just need to accept it. You know? and, and, and it also changes how I look at things. As Dr. Paul says, if I focus on a problem, the problem increases. If I focus on the answer, the answer increases. And it's the same with good and bad in people. You know, and the other thing I, I have to remember about that big picture thing is that, that you know, rejection is God's protection. And I definitely need to remember that. It cuts down on my frustration. It don't go my way. It helps me deal with disappointment. You know, the, the thing about being around a while is I can look back at past disappointment 
things that I thought were horrible and see how they weren't as bad as I thought at the time. And that's another one of those positive feedback loops I was talking about earlier. The more that happens, the more you don't get upset and disappointed when things don't go your way. I mean, here's a recent example. One of my home meetings was having problems at their location. There were a lot of mentally ill homeless people who would wander into the meeting place because it was also a meeting place for NA and AA. And they would come in and drink our coffee and then start harassing our people. You know, we sort of had this belief, look, you can either drink our coffee or harass us, but you can't do both. <laughs> so anyway, I went out and spent a lot of time and found an alternate location where we could move to, and I brought it up for a vote. And the vote lost by like only one or two votes. And, and I have to admit, I was very disappointed. I really felt the group made it, made the wrong decision. And people came up to me and said, oh, you should resubmit it. It was so close. Maybe we can get it the next time. And I said, no, I, I believe in the second tradition. I believe God expressed himself in a group conscience. And, and I did. And I said, that's it. I'm done. Well, a few weeks later, another OA member came up and found a great location, a different location. It was closer to the original location than the one I had found. It was a much better facility in every way. And this time, the vote passed. You know, so as it turned out, my higher power knew better than me, and what we ended up with was much better than I could have ever believed possible. But, you know, it's things like that event that make it easier when you look at them in the past to accept things in the future that would otherwise frustrate or disappoint me. I know God has a plan and a sense of humor, you know, especially with a lot of stuff going on in the world these days, you know. And there's this great quote from a commencement speech Steve Jobs gave at Stanford one year. He says, you cannot connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. This approach has never let me down and it has made all the difference. Well, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I read a version of the serenity prayer there that just tap dances around the word God. The same, isn't it? You can't know things looking forward. You can only look at them going back. And, you know, another part of working this third step is getting out of that bondage yourself, or as I sometimes like to call it, the whirlpool itself, which always amplifies my problem. I need to remember it's not all about me. It's rarely about me. You know, and if I can truly believe that, I turn up a lot less stomach acid and I lead a much happier, more serene life. You know, this um, this concept also helped me about being self-conscious about other about things and about other people. You know, there's this great quote that says, "The thing that would bother me most about what people think about me is how very little they actually think about me on a daily basis." And it's true. Uh, the other thing is, I like a lot of other people. I tend to not like change, especially as I get older. But here's another axiom to live by. Change isn't painful. Resistance to change is painful. You know? And so all of these things I've been talking about, you don't have to do these things. I've seen a lot of people with many years of, quote, recovery who have yet to make these changes. But as a result, their lives are often in turmoil and they're not very happy people. You know, the real goal here at the end of the day is to live as happy, contented people. You know, much more contented than I ever was when I was in the group. And also, happy, contented people don't want to do things that are self-destructive, deliberately self-destructive, like compulsive eating. And, and you know what? Doing this is almost like working a muscle. It develops over time. 
sometimes simply choosing to not do something for a short time. I used to have an old Al-Anon sponsor who used to say, don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> and it was true. How often some of the things that bothered me end up taking care of themselves without me having to interfere. Now, this is hard because, you know, the whole idea of turning our will and our lives over is something that, it, that it can, you know, it fights our natural inbred concepts of control. I mean, this is literally in our, in our hindbrain. This is stuff that goes back to when we were fending off saber-toothed tigers, you know. But we need to come to understand we don't need that control anymore. And again, as I said before, we never really had it anyway. It was really just an illusion. You know, when I was newly sober, my life was always in turmoil. It was always, it was all drama all the time, you know. And then I would look around at these old-timers I saw in me. And these old-timers would get up and talk about having, you know, been diagnosed with cancer. Their spouse is dying. All kinds of really bad things that were happening in their lives. But they themselves were calm. You know, they were at peace. And I remember thinking that in terms of life, you know, life sometimes is like being in a really stormy sea, you know. Lots of big waves crashing around. And, and at that time, newly sober, I was in this little dinghy, and I was being bounced all over the place, you know. But I would look at those old timers, and they were like ocean liners. You know, the ocean liners plowing right through those waves. You know, and I remember thinking, I want to be like that someday. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because... I sort of am that way now. But there's an interesting change in perspective I have on that situation. You know, when life's stormy waves are huge and crashing all around me, I am like an ocean liner. What I can see now from the inside looking out that I couldn't see then because I was looking from the outside in is that I'm not an ocean liner made of steel plowing through the waves. I'm an ocean liner made of mesh and the waves are going through me. And if there's no resistance, there's no turmoil. And at the end of the day, it's the serenity prayer, right? And it's all that all-important paragraph on page 417 from Dr. Paul's on acceptance. In particular, I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to change in the, be changed in the world as to what needs to be changed in me and my attitude. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you so much, John, for this insightful and thoughtful presentation this morning. Greatly appreciated. John's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. We will now transition to questions. If you have a question, please press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself. Janice M. Janice M. Jean. Jean O. Jean O. L. L. Natasha A. Natasha A. All right, let's start with Janice M, please. Well, good morning, everyone, and good morning to you, John Kay. Um, this is Janice Ann from Massachusetts, and it's so nice to hear you. I hear you a couple of times at 10 a.m. and enjoy you. I have a couple of questions. One, they're kind of related. Now, I, I, you can tell me if I heard you wrong because you know my hearing. Um, 
did you say that you did not give your fourth step, you gave your fifth step to somebody else other than a sponsor? That's absolutely true. Gave one to okay. a therapist. Okay, with a therapist. Now, I don't want to ask you personal problems, but um, and how did you do, this is really three questions, and how did you do your ninth step? With how did I do it? Uh, no, I mean, uh, uh, well, uh, no, I, uh, the actual incidents of my fourth step I, I did with my therapist, and obviously uh, working, I'm a big believer, by the way, in that the eighth step is, is the one step you really do need a lot of guidance from a sponsor, because I will go from uh, wanting to, to make amends to some kid I said something bad to in the first grade, and my sponsor's going to go, nah, you don't need to do that, Um to right. wanting to use that wonderful uh, gotcha, you know, that, that loophole of except when to do so it would injure a number of others on things where I really do need to make uh, an amend. And so, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, m most of the things, um, you know, I, uh, if there was something I really didn't want to tell a sponsor, um, I, could, I could just sort of keep it more general and say, yeah, I had some things that, uh, you know, that were really bad and I want to talk to them about it. And, but, you know, maybe, you know, it's the, the thing that I see a lot of people hold back on are things from their sex inventory that are, are a little embarrassing or even maybe a lot embarrassing that they don't want to have to describe exactly to a, a sponsor. And, and there's ways you can, you can do that with somebody. You can do your fourth step with somebody else who may be a little bit more able to handle it, and yet you can explain to a sponsor in a way that when you're deciding on your, your amends list, that they can be understood without having to go into the gory details. And you can even say some of the stuff I, I prefer not to talk about, but here's the situation now. You know, and again, on some of these, it may be, you know, if somebody's been unfaithful, you know, it's, uh, you know, something where they don't want to, uh, you know, again, it would injure others to go say, you know, to somebody's husband, hey, I had an affair with your wife. Um, but it is good to then get, yeah, like you said, to get feedback from a, a sponsor on the eight steps because I, I just think that's so important. But I think you can do that in a different way. But I really, I, I just see people sometimes, I think they they want to censor themselves on their fourth step because whatever it is they're, you know, you know you have, you can have a young girl who's in her 20s and her 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 sponsor is sort of a booby grandmother. Now, look, I, I'm getting to that age where I know you, you kids don't know we were just as rowdy as you were, but it may be one of those things where she, uh, wants to censor herself because she doesn't want to have that come out and to maybe do it with somebody else, uh, you know, I think that's an important thing that it be mentioned once in a while that you don't have to do uh, a fifth step with a sponsor. It just needs to be somebody you feel you can be totally open and honest with. It helps to have, like my therapist had a lot of 12-step background, so uh -huh. that helps. Uh, you know, I, uh, but, you know, it isn't 100% necessary. A clergy person can be another person. But then, obviously, you're absolutely right. You then still have to go, I wouldn't try and work on an eight step with a therapist. I would want to be able to do it with a sponsor. But if there were things that I felt were a little too, that I didn't want to talk about with that sponsor, uh, I would have no trouble. And I, I tell my sponsees the same thing. Write that thing, write that fourth step for you to look at. Don't think about, you know, about me. I'm absolutely fine. I have no ego involved in you giving me a fifth step. I do have an interest in you doing it with somebody. Hmm. I hope that answered it. Well, 
Yeah, thank you. This, the third part was already answered. <laughs> yes, one and two and three. Thank you, John, and I pass. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Janice. Jean L. Good morning, John. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, great. Um, wonderful, wonderful message. And you identified my brain, a broken <laughs> brain. And, but this, and you said so much that I'm going to have to listen to it several times. But um, better than that for me would be to read something. Do you have a blog? Um, I do. Um, I'm going to give you my contact information at the. Uh, I, I could give it now, Melanie. But I mean, uh, uh, Leah, is there a reason that we wait? Fine. Is there a reason it's, we wait? It's the your end? preference. Go ahead. Uh, I don't mind. Uh, you, you can contact me at john at foodrelapse.com, and I'll give you some more information of things you can read. Uh, that, was that, little, what, that was okay. a little fast. John what? Okay. Now, john at j-o-h-n at foodrelapse.com. All one word, foodrelapse.com. And, uh, yeah, and I can talk to you more. This is, I do have things, but since they're not on official OA website, I don't like to, to talk about them in an official OA meeting. That's excellent. Now, have you have you done another special with your, more of your story, like when you began and what was the uh, beginning? Uh, no, uh, no I, uh, up on the LA Intergroup website, there's the podcast, which I started and I'm very proud of. Um, there's a number of my my stories up there. If you uh, if you go to the LA Intergroup website, and then you're going to see like a little bit, looks like a, 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 a player. To the right, there's like a little... Um, a little, uh, like a medallion kind of thing. If you click that, it brings up a list of all the speakers, and you can sort at the top and look for John. I think I'm the only John who, who's spoken on that, which is weird because the name John is always, you know, quite uh, known. But there are uh, uh, three other uh, special editions. I did that one in Relapse in December 2015, and I did two other ones in 2016, and then this one. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thank you, Jean. Natasha A. Hi, thank you so much, and thank you for sharing, John. Really great. Got a lot out of that. My question for you is, for your sponsee, for a new sponsee of yours, what does day one look like for them? You know, for uh, yeah, sure. Okay, well, it's been a while. It's been a while since I've had uh, a new sponsee. Most of the sponsees I have have got a, quite a bit of time. Uh, you may want to mute. It's a little, it's a little hard to uh, hear. Um, what I've, I, uh, what I've always done is uh, the first thing I'll ask the sponsor to do is write up some kind of a food history, and it's mainly because I want to know about them and food and weight history. But it's also to get it out on paper for them to think about, you know, because one of those things about writing a food history is just you're writing this stuff. And you go, wow, I never thought about how this has just been such a pattern in my life. And then I try and work out and ask them about a food plan. Do you have a food plan? Um, I think it's a very, very important thing to have. Um, you know, I've, I've made the joke sometimes. You guys have all heard the phrase, you know, OA without the steps is just a diet. And I agree. But I also joke, I say, you know, OA without a food plan has a name too. It's called Al-Anon. You know, Al-Anon's a wonderful program to help integrate the steps in your life, but it's not going to do anything for your food. And I think you need to have some kind of food plan. So I will talk to them about that. Now, I am not a nutritionist, but I, and very often um, I believe it wouldn't hurt to go see somebody, but I do want to talk to them about it. And especially those, you know, uh, breaking things down into a red light, yellow light, green light food list. Um, 
And I always joke that 90% of my yellow light foods are actually red light foods I'm trying to play games with, you know. And in terms of that, that stoplight analogy, on those yellow light foods, I'm jamming on the accelerator trying to make it before the light goes red. Uh, but, yeah, I try to get them to do that, and then immediately I want them getting into the big book. Um, you know, obviously, first things first, I can talk about getting in the big book, but I think, again, I'm a big believer in the real-world concept of, you know, and I, we just had a long discussion on the, on the board about the fact that nowhere in that big book have I ever read, do all this work, do all these steps, and then you will want to stop drifting. You know, uh, I would never have the temerity to want to rewrite the big book, but, boy, I wish... If they'd have known all these different programs that were going to come out of AA, they would have written in the beginning of the book in big letters, in case you guys don't get it, this all supposes you put down your substance first. But I've always heard, put down the food, pick up the steps in one motion, you know, do it simultaneously. But so, yeah, I usually do have that. I try to get people to work on the food, get that in order, and then immediately get into the steps. And then as I'm working through and reading, you know, the, you know, the forward, the doctor's opinion, the bill story, to really get, do you identify? Can you see why you're powerless? And then move on from there. But again, I'm a big first things first person. You know, um, there's uh, there's this great um, pamphlet. It's a, it, it is a official, uh, and I always love to mention this because it's one of my favorite pieces of writing that you don't hear a lot in no way because it's actually an AA pamphlet. But it's an AA pamphlet called A Member's Eye View of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was written by a gentleman here in Los Angeles, uh, uh, Alan M., who was, he was a, a therapist himself, and he was giving a, a lecture to a group of uh, graduating students uh, of uh, eating disorders. And it was explaining the, the 12 steps in the big book in a way that was, it's much more approachable and of, uh, um, of, the, of our times. You know, a lot of times newcomers have trouble with the big book, but since it's written in 1935, it has some slightly archaic language, and uh, and this this was sort of a, a restating of it. And But one of the things he talked in there about the, this whole program is, you know, is that nowhere did you not get the idea that the first thing is, is absence. He even used the word absence. You know, that, that the, in a, and he said something to the effect of, in AA, you know, the cart does come before the horse. And, and it's great to work on why I did all of this eating and drinking, but he's got a great line. He says, you know, autopsies are wonderful things. They just don't benefit the person on whom they're performed, <laughs> you know. So to me, it's about put the food down, pick the steps up. Thanks, Natasha. Who else has a question for John this morning? Star one to unmute. Identify yourself. This is, this is Julie. Can I be heard? Yes, Julie. Hold on one second. Anyone else? Matt M. Matt M. Carol D. Carol D. Yes. Who else? June S. June S. Okay. Julie, let's start with you. First letter, your last name, please, as well. Thank you. Go ahead, Julie F. Everybody else, please mute. Hi. Thank you so, so much for sharing. And my question is, 
So once you have found recovery, why do you keep coming back? Uh, yeah. Well, um, for a lot of reasons. Um, I love, um, you know, it's about the, it's about the steps. And hang on, I'm going to go get one of my favorite little pieces of uh, reading. Uh, and it's from the big book, and it's from Dr. Bob's Nightmare. And he says, you know, I spent a great deal of time passing on what I learned to, uh, to others who want it and need it badly. And I do it for four reasons. One, a sense of duty. Two, it is a pleasure. Three, because in doing so, so I am paying my debt to the man who took the time to pass it to me. And four, because every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against the possible slip. And... You know, I am so, so grateful that I was born now. You know, if you think about it, if I was born 100 years ago, I'd have been dead for 30 years uh, because I would have died of alcoholism, I'd have died of compulsive eating, uh, something would have happened. But thank God there was a higher power who put this program here for me. And then guess what? There was somebody... You know, you think of the early days of both AA and OA and all the work that went involved in getting it going. You know, I was friends, good friends with Rosanna, who, who literally lived down the street from me. I've been in her, I was in her kitchen that was the original house that she started OA in, and all the work that, that, that went in in the beginning. And then just even the, the guy who had the meeting list recording on an answering machine in his garage in Westport, Connecticut, when I was first trying to get abstinent, um, he allowed me to get to my first meeting and to have people there who probably listened to the same answering machine and got to that meeting and got recovery, which started it for me. I, I, I don't know. I'm just one of these people. I cannot turn around and want to not help the next person and to keep propagating it because it's important that it be here forever. You know, I was at a, a, a meeting. Uh, we used to have the Sunday meeting, um, and it was the same four or five people kept rotating, secretary, treasurer, this and that, and, and nobody else would take it. And it was a good-sized meeting, and we could never get the people. And we all got together, the four or five of us, and said, we're going to sit on our hands. We're not going to raise our hands next time, and this is either going to work or it's not. And what happened was... Nobody, nobody stepped up to want to do the service position, and we closed the meeting. And I remember saying to somebody, I want to be outside that door next week when that, those people show up who only came every other week or something, and the door was locked. And I wanted to almost be like it's a wonderful life and go, you know, you weren't there to do this. And so, therefore, it didn't happen, and that didn't happen, and that's why this meeting doesn't exist anymore. And, and, and because, there, you know, there is no servant class in OA. There is no service other than us. And if we don't do it, who will? And, yes, I do it because I need a, meet, I need a program to come back to. But I also think, you know, it's about me paying back. We, you know, that movie came out years ago, Pay It Forward. <laughs> and I was always laughing. I go, well, we've been doing that forever in 12-step programs. You know, I, when I got sober, I got sober. I was 300 and something pounds, and I was driving a moped. Okay, I called it I called it cruelty to motor vehicle, and eventually I killed that moped, and I had to walk to meetings. Well, guess what? People, even if I went to the meeting on foot, there was always somebody there to drive me home. And and to this day, when they, somebody needs a ride, I want to do that. 
But I know I could never pay that guy back who gave me the ride, but I could pay it back by doing it for the next person. And that's what I believe this service is all about. You know, it's being in that chain and paying it forward. Thank you, Julie F., for the question. Matt M. Can you hear me, Leah? Yep, there you are. Yeah, it took me a second to unmute. Hi, uh, thank you, John, for your wonderful sharing presentation. I just wanted to know, how did you deal in the beginning of your abstinence with the white knuckling slash withdrawal part of your abstinence? I'm going through that right now, and it's very frustrating. It makes me want to dive back into the food. Can you tell me how you dealt with those feelings in the beginning? Oh, sure. You know, that's one of the things I don't think is ever talked about enough. Um, you know, when, when I start out uh, talking about a retreat, I take a little bit of time and, and just go through the fact that this is hard. <laughs> you know, uh, you know it, it, it's one of these things where speakers get up and we want to be inspirational and all that. And, and the reality is I could have really used to hear that in the beginning, you know, or if I was coming out of relief, that this is hard. And it's, the thing is, it's not hard all the time, but in the beginning, it very often is. And I really would have liked to have heard that because it would have validated my belief, you know. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I, I ended up going to another program for a while that had a much more rigid uh, a food plan and all that. And I kept trying to get abstinent there. And and I would keep breaking my abstinence. And I had a string of sponsors and every time I broke my abstinence, they would be like, well, think good thoughts, go read this page, go read that. And and it didn't help. Finally, I ended up with a sponsor, this guy Ward, and he um, he said, okay, here's the key. You're in your first 30 days of abstinence. It's going to suck. <laughs> well, here's the thing. It, the first 30 days of abstinence didn't all suck, but occasionally they did. And the thing is, when I didn't have the day suck, I would be like, oh, wow, I'm ahead of the game. And when it did, I was like, well, that's just what he told me. You know, it's all that expectation thing. And and to realize that, that it does get better. I, I'll tell you, if, 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 if being abstinent was like it was in my first 30, 60, 90 days, I don't know if I'd keep coming back, but we're not masochists. I can promise you it will get better. Not to say there aren't days when it isn't tough, especially if you're going through something. But those those tough days get further and further apart. And um, do not discourage, by the way, if, if you're having done a lot of sugar and white flour and you're trying to work a food plan that doesn't use that, there's a physical withdrawal to that. There just is. You know, uh, A number of years ago, uh, I read this study where they, they, they quantified uh, this with rats and they tested all these different substances and the top two substances they found that were addictive was nicotine and sugar above heroin, cocaine, alcohol. So don't, don't um, minimize that. And but at the end of the day, I always joke when I hear people who, who derisively talk about white knuckle abstinence. They go, yeah, it's not our optimum. But guess what? White knuckle abstinence is better than eating. Because if you eat, you're still going to come back and deal with white knuckle abstinence again. And that's one of the things I always tell sponsors. They're going through a tough time. I say, think it through. Are you, know, you going to say, oh, the heck with it and leave away? Probably not. You're going to eat. You're going to come back. You're going to eventually end up in the exact same position you are now. And what are you going to do? You're going to keep doing that loop of over and over and over? You know, the way to get better is to go through things. And, yes, they are. They can be difficult. And, and sometimes I think we bring in newcomers and we try to paint a panacea, you know, and in a way we're, we're, we're uh, almost like, 
pandering to their disease instead of saying, hey, you know what, it's going to be a little tough for a while. But we get through it, we get out the other side. And, and it's okay, and it's okay to say it stinks, it sucks. But the, the benefits are so good. In the beginning, it's so hard because our disease wants to hold up this balance sheet in front of us. And the thing is that the balance sheet my disease holds up has one side whited out. And it's saying, oh, look, you poor thing, you don't get to eat this anymore, and you don't get to eat that anymore. You know, My disease has never held up the balance sheet in the opposite thing with the other side, where it goes, oh, you poor thing, you don't get to be uh, out of breath after walking up three steps. Oh, you poor thing, you don't wear out your pants in the crotch anymore because your thighs rub together. Oh, you poor thing, you don't have to ask the stewardess for a seatbelt extender. So it comes down at the end of the day um, to realizing, that, you know, eyes on the prize, they used to say in the civil rights movement. What do I want? And the only way I'm going to get it is to continue to move forward, keeping the food down, working the steps. As I heard somebody say once, the great line, you can do what you want or you can get what you want. Today I want to get what I want, and I realize my disease is always going to be whispering that I can do what I want, and it, you know, it tells lies. Thank you, Madam. Carol D. Star one to unmute, Carol D. Hello. We hear you. Okay, thank you. Um, this is my first phone meeting, and I'm new to OA. Um, thank you Welcome. for the talk. Um, I have a question regarding feelings. Um, I'm going through the steps right now, mm-hmm. and um, I grew up in a family where I was a caretaker, and I suffered abuse. Um, I also was punished for showing anger. And I turned to food, specifically sugar, um, to meet my needs. Um, and now when I'm going through the steps, um, I feel such anger at, at um, how this handicapped my whole life. Um, I kind of like see my orientation um, towards people and towards food. And I'm kind of going through um, um, anger plus uh, grief, and I was wondering if there's anywhere in, in the big book that speaks of this, like a grief over looking back at your life and when you kind of like wake up um, and then see like all the wasted time and, and you know, and and all the fits and spurts of trying to heal yourself and um, it's kind of like anger at why this happened in the first place, like like um, I don't know if I'm being clear, but that's my mm. question: is like how to deal with with um, anger and feelings once you're not turning to food. No, that's a good question. I mean, let's face that's what you know. Almost all of us, in one way or another, ache over our feelings, and anger is uh, you know it, it's an interesting thing. I, I always joke that we guys when we first come in, anger is one of those those emotions we have no trouble embracing because it's sort of a macho emotion for guys. And and I always joke that, you know, newly sober, newly abstinent guys have got two emotions, angry and about to be angry, you know. But the thing I also learned in program from other people is that 
Anger is a secondary emotion, that it's always on top of something else. It's on top of hurts, it's on top of fear, and, and uh, to realize that uh, if I scrape down another level, I get to the hurt, I get to the fear. And, it's, it, and it's, it's re- in some ways, it, it's really sucky when uh, I look back at some of the things in my childhood that were, I go, God, no kid should ever have to go through that. And, um, again, some of this comes down to just almost like accepting it and saying, well, you know what, I can't change that. And the part of what my program teaches me is that, um, uh, you know, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it, as it says, you know, uh, on page 164, that we, we, the way we get better is to look at it, acknowledge it, and then try and find a way for forgiveness. And that's hard in the beginning, you know, especially when things were really bad, you know. And, and I have some people for whom really bad things were done to me, maybe even things that those people could have gone to jail for. But at the end of the day, it's my stomach acid. It's my anger. It's my stuff that I'm trying to alleviate. And I always like to say that, you know, there's all these, these things the program teaches us and Maybe in the beginning I didn't do them for the most Gandhi-like reason. I might have done them in a very selfish way, but they accomplished the same thing, which is to get me some measure of peace by, by praying about it, you know? And that, that, that story I mentioned about uh, freedom from bondage, she has that wonderful thing about praying for somebody for a number of days uh, until you get better. I'm not going to try and, you know, rip through my big book right now to get it. But... The idea of wanting, you know, um, to realize certain things, like, you know, line. I, I learned it in another program, but the line is hurt people, hurt people. In other words, this is usually a chain. And I can look at, like, uh, I had a really nasty, nasty grandfather who did a lot of really nasty, nasty things to me and to his children, like, you know, my mother and, and aunts and uncles. And... But then I also found out later a little more about him that he came from a nasty, nasty father who was like born in Ireland and used to beat him with dog chains. Now, that didn't in any way justify what he did to others, but you begin to see that chain of hurt and and and, and then it ends on me and it makes me it makes me bad you know, horrible. And when you can start to to sort of see that there's you know, things happened to other people who really hurt me. I can start to see them as flawed human beings and the children of God. And it's not easy sometimes, but to get to that. And the other thing I'll say is that, you know, whereas I needed to dissipate my anger and to get it out, some people, uh, I see it a lot, especially in women, I mean, you know, again, guys got that macho thing with anger, and we're willing to show that. Some women turn it inwards into depression. And then that's bad, too. So sometimes it's a matter of getting the anchor out in some ways, getting it out on paper or something, and then being able to say, okay, wow, and on top of that, underneath that anger was the hurt. How could you do that kind of thing? How could you set people up for this kind of thing? And in the end of the day, there's no answer. There is only the forgiveness of saying, look, uh, either, either I learn to forgive this or I'm going to spend the rest of my life eating or, or, or just gnashing my teeth. Again, that freedom from bondage is a really wonderful story because it talks about in there, she talks about 
having had a 25-year resentment against her mother, and she talks about how she nursed it like a um, like like a, a baby, you know. And and at the end of the day, it was the reason for everything that went wrong with her life. And the longer she was sober, and the more she was able to look, you know, uh, you know, you can say, well, God, these things were horrible. And I look at all those things that when I was getting, you know, trying to get sober and and, and abstinent. And say, you know what? I, I I was still out of the house by 17 or 18, and I'm, you know, at this age now. I, at some point, I can't keep blaming my parents forever. It can be real stuff, but how do I break that thread? You know, one of the other things is there's a thread that runs through time with us. Sometimes there will certain people will say a certain thing to me, and all of a sudden I'll be nuts about it because there's a thread that runs back to time. And it's something that maybe my grandfather said or something like that. And because I've never broken that thread, I will overreact to things that have nothing to do with that. They have to do with something that happened to me 30 years ago. You know, there's a great line, if it's, hyster- if it's hysterical, it's historical. And if I'm, you know, and at the end of the day, it's about my recovery. How am I going to get better? How am I going to be able to live in the world? And if I'm still holding on to all those hurts, and all that stuff, and I'm not finding a way to forgive, I'm the one who's going to be stuck with this. You know, for, my grandfather could have cared less whether I forgave him, but my forgiving him allowed me to let go. It allowed me to cut that thread back through the past and move on. And for me, it's, that's the reason you do it, for self-preservation, so that you stop eating a day at a time. Like it says, you know, in the big book, if, if we eat, we die. Thank you, Carol D., for the question. June S. Good morning. Um, this is June S., and thank you, John, for your discussion today. It was it was beautiful, supportive. You've shed light on concepts I heard about, but without really understanding them. I just have a question about um, your Sunday edition where you discuss, is there a Sunday edition where you discuss your concept of higher power? Um, actually, no, I, I, I haven't done one of those. I've, uh, uh, written an article or two, and if you want to email me later, uh, I'll, I'll point you to those. Um, uh, and again, it's, you know, it's, one of the problems I had, okay, I'll just, uh, let me just say this, is I had to change my concept that I was given as a kid, because, okay, one of the examples is, I, I you know, again, I, I just briefly touched on, I don't want to go into the whole glory story here, but, I came from two lines of sort of nasty Irish alcoholics, and especially the males in my family, you know, were not exactly the kind of people. And when uh, the higher power I was given was sort of given a a male representation, you know, uh, that just wasn't going to work for me. I couldn't imagine an all-kind, all-loving higher power that was male. Now, that's totally my thing. I'm, I'm the first to admit that. But there has to be a way to find a, a belief in in something, you know, uh, in a belief in a, uh, a, a higher power that will envelop me and wrap me with, with some kind of love and caring about me uh, so that I can get better. And, uh, and like I said, that, that what I was given just wasn't going to work as a kid. And, you know, I've also heard that great thing about write a one ad for your higher power and, and, and to see how that would be. My, old, my first day sponsor said, you know, I was talking one day about God and, you know, all the things I was taught. And he says, 
well, what, do you have an idea what you think if you were designing a God it would be like? And I went, yeah, you know, uh, you know, you know, universal love. And he said, no, no, stop. Go home and write on that and then we'll bring it back. And so when I brought it back and I read him all the stuff that I thought, I thought a higher power should be, he looked at me and said, well, there it is, right there. That's your higher power. Who's to say it isn't, you know? And, um, and it's, for me, it's about figuring out what's going to work for me. You know, all those people I mentioned that were clergymen, they believed in a higher power of some kind or they wouldn't have been clergymen, yet they didn't really get that that could help them with their problem. And that was one of the things the big book had to teach them, that that could help them with their problem. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, June. John, would you like me to take a few more questions? Rachel. Sure, sure, okay. sure, sure. Excellent. Was this Rachel? Sarah W. Yes. Okay, Rachel. Sarah W. Hello. I'm new to. I relapsed and then I came back to the rooms, and I'm new to Vision for You. And I wanted to ask you. You said that um, not only your higher power, but also to your sponsor, and. I find it hard to, because the sponsor is a person as well, be honest if I do slip or I don't do the assignment that was given to me. How do you bridge that from a higher power to a person? Thank you for your wonderful share. Thanks. Um, well, yeah, first of all, sponsors are human. They will undoubtedly, at some point, if you're with them long enough, will disappoint you, will piss you off, uh, maybe totally wrong on something, because we are human beings, and there's, you know, only our real higher power is going to not have those uh, things. But you've also got to find a way to have a, higher, uh, a sponsor that you can be honest with, and a sponsor who you feel you can... And, uh, be honest about what's going on with you. Um, I always uh, joke with uh, the, the sponsees that I said, I'm not your, um, I'm not the food police here, but I am the honesty police. You know, and if you tell me in June, I'm not going to eat such and such anymore, and then in July you mentioned eating such and such, I'm going to say, hey, you know, back in June you told me you weren't going to eat that anymore, and things like that. Well, you know, and when it comes to... Um, you know, when it, when it comes to working these things and doing assignments and things like that, you know, I try and put this in just pure logic terms. You know, if we are, are trying to work a program that's based on Alcoholics Anonymous, we have to be willing to do what it says that they tell us to do to get better. And right there, you know, in uh, the big book, you know, willing to go to any length, um, uh, you know, uh, like the drowning, you know, like like the drowning man, you know, half measures avail us nothing. It, it couldn't be more clear. We, at our meetings, we read how it works almost every meeting. And it, the, the, the good thing about that is it's really nice to keep hearing that stuff over and over. The trouble with sometimes is, is it starts to become rote and we don't hear it anymore. But it comes down to being willing to go to any length. And 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 if I ask sponsors to do something and they don't, I just I don't I'm I'm not you know 
luckily, Tony Allen on made me a much better sponsor because I don't get into power frames with him anymore. But I go, hey, if you want what I what I have, you have to do what I do, and I don't tell them to do anything I wasn't willing to do as well. And um, but they have to be willing to go to any lengths. It it can't be well. I didn't get that, and I'm going to do that. Or and it's hard because. And again, I, I share about this is that one of the reasons I think this disease is so hard is that it makes you uncomfortable enough to know you should be doing certain things, but it doesn't necessarily make you uncomfortable enough to be willing to go to any lengths. You know, when I came into my first program, I was just so beat down. I just I put my hands up and said, just tell me what to do. You want me to go stand buck naked in the middle of the street? I'll do it. I just want help. And it's hard to do that with the food because it doesn't push you to the same levels of desperation. But the key to recovery is you don't have to be at that level of desperation. You just have to act like you are. You have to do what somebody who would be at that level of desperation would do, which is to say, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And, and I also tell sponsors, I haven't had sponsors slip for a while, but I tell them what kind of an action plan do you have. You know, you can talk all this stuff all you want, but at 9 o'clock at night when the urge is there, what are you going to do? Do you have a plan? I'm going to make calls. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Or is it just, oh, it's all out the window. I'm heading out to 7-Eleven to buy something. And and that's an important thing because uh, our disease is going to try and convince us to do that, and we have to have a plan of what's going to happen. And if we don't, we're just constantly going to be keep, keep slipping and sliding. And if I was a sponsor, I, that's what I'd be saying, you know, when I, I, I'm on a couple of these boards for overeaters, and I keep seeing the same people post over and over, oh, I slipped again last night, I slipped last again, and I'll just post, did you talk to your sponsor? What are you doing? What are you going to do? It, it's fine. Yes, it doesn't help beat yourself up overeating. You know, it's funny. When I was in that relapse, I would go to meetings and say, well, I, I ate last night, but I'm not going to beat myself up. And then I'd show up the next day, well, I ate again, but I'm not going to beat myself up. And finally, I had an old timer walk up and go, did you ever consider that eating last night was beating yourself up? And and she really nailed me on that. And the reality is, um, uh, where was I going with this, um, that I, it, it, it certainly doesn't help me to beat myself up over having eaten, but What's going to be different today so that I'm not getting on the phone tomorrow and saying I ate again last night? Because if nothing changes, nothing changes. That's what the program teaches me. And it's so hard because this is sort of a chicken and the egg thing is that that we have to sort of take a lot of the stuff on faith and it's not easy in the beginning and uh, until we grow and then it gets much easier. But it is one of those things where the food has to be down first so that we can grow so that we will no longer want to. You know, I don't want to eat today. I don't want to compulsively overeat today. But you know why I do all this work? I do all this work because I don't want to want to compulsively overeat today. And I know that I'll get more protection about that if I do all this extra work. But it involves having a sponsor you're willing to go to. And, you know, that hopefully that if, if that sponsor is only going to be shaming and maybe there needs to be another sponsor, but it, it some of that shame may be stuff you put on yourself, whereas maybe your sponsor is saying, well, what are we going to change? What's going to be different? And if you're constantly slipping and sliding, that's a question you've got to ask yourself. What's going to be different tomorrow so that you're not, you know, repeating the behavior you had today which or the day before, which was eating? So I hope that helps. Thank you, Rachel. Sarah W., 
Your turn. Thank you, Leah, for your service. Good morning, John. Thank you so much. Really beautiful, and uh, I'm very like-minded with you about many, many things. I appreciate it. Um, I was going to ask you, you know, so many people that we work with really come, as you said, from such a uh, shame-based background, self-sabotaging. And, you know, I know enough about, uh, I'm in a couple of programs, I know enough about um, uh, addiction to know that that is a very common theme. And to really effectively help somebody that consistently self-sabotages, you know, the, the idea that, you know, I don't deserve the good. And that, you know, the comfort comes in chaos and craziness. Uh, Just some thoughts that you would have on that, please. Sure. Well, you know, one of the weirdest things about about that kind of thing is that, uh, you know, there's an old axiom in psychology that says people will choose what's familiar over what's good. Meaning we we tend to, it's, it's, you know, when we go to get abstinent, we're into new uncharted territory. And, and how to go through life without the thing that we've had. And, you know, the other thing that in, in this, like when I'm deleting your treat, I take a good 15, 20 minutes talking about why compulsive eating and recovery from it is hard. And one of the things is that it's with us from practically birth, you know. I mean, I don't care how bad a drug addict or alcoholic, you're, you're not doing that until probably your early teens at the worst. But food is with us from the beginning and has so many things ingrained in us, whether it's you know, mother, love, reward, uh, good times, and and that so since we've had that all along, the idea of then finding a way to live without that and changing our behaviors, it's it's scary in a way, and we tend to scoot back toward what is familiar instead of what we know is is good for us. And when it comes to self-sabotaging, you know, that to me, you know, that's almost the essence of the disease, isn't it? We, we sabotage, and, and it, like I mentioned earlier, knowledge of our disease alone will not cure us like it's in the book because it just doesn't. I mean, and that was the frustrating thing during my relapse. You know, when I was in a relapse, uh, it wasn't like I walked in and had a weekly relapse. I had 14 years in program and could quote you huge tracks of the first 164 pages of the big book, and yet I was going out every night. And so the thing that was so frustrating is is that there's no way to learn your way ahead of it. You know, it involves, you know, finding, uh, you know, a power greater than yourself and and, and that, you know, to realize, I I mean, I was joking about somebody the other day when I heard somebody say, I'm getting abstinent today. I'm like, well, lots of luck, you know. I kept trying to get abstinent for years, you know, uh, the first of the week, uh, you know, a Monday or the first day, the first day of the new month or the first of the year. Well, I remember uh, when I was, I was bound to determine last time out to get on the first of January, I'm getting abstinent. Well, you know what? My abstinent date is March 7th. <laughs> so figure out how long it took that train to come to a stop. But you know why? Because I didn't get myself abstinent on March 7th. My higher power said he's had enough. He's had enough. He's trying. Let's give him a chance. But the thing is, once I was given that gift of abstinence, that higher power was never going to take it away from me. You know, that was always going to be me deliberately giving it away. And that's the thing about that that, that self-sabotaging is I didn't really understand my disease. And and, and in that, that thing I did on relapse, I talked about the two things I didn't understand was how powerless work powerlessness worked when it came to my disease, and then also how my disease worked within my brain. Because 
you know, I was, I was, uh, I was working hard trying to get, I was in a way, I was, uh, had a sponsor. I was a delegate to my intergroup. I was even uh, running a meeting as a secretary and I was even sponsoring to those last two I should not have been doing, by the way. But I would leave that meeting uh, that I led, you know, as a secretary and I would go to the donut shop on the way home. And I would leave there going, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And the thing I couldn't understand is I wasn't doing it. I want to be abstinent. I wouldn't have been doing all of that work. I wouldn't have been having a sponsor. I wouldn't have been all those things if I really wanted to eat. But at that exact moment of impulse, my disease says, you want to do this. And, and it, it impels me to go pick up that first bite. And the really evil, I, I always talk about it being the world's greatest salesman, you know, and then it can read my mind. It's always there trying to make the sale of getting me to eat. And if it does make the sale of getting me to eat, the self-sabotage, it puts its arm around me and says, oh, and this was actually your idea, you know. No, no, it wasn't my idea. My idea was to be absent. And I have to realize when that little voice comes in my head that says, go do that, that's not me. That is the disease. And when I was finally able to sort of see it as something outside attacking me, I could defend against it. The trouble was for years I thought it was just, oh, I changed my mind for the 5,000th time. And then I was of no help. And so, in a way, the, the phrase self-sabotaging is saying you're the one who's going to eat. And I would say, no, your disease is sabotaging you and then convincing you it was self-sabotaging. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Thank you, Sarah W. Anyone else with a question? Star one to unmute. This is Tara K. Tara. Anyone else? This is Eddie C. from Virginia. Eddie C. Okay. Go ahead, Tara. Hi, uh, John. I've really enjoyed your um, your share. Eddie? Uh, yes. Yeah, hold on. Let's go with Tara first, and then we'll oh, come I'm back so to you. No problem. <laughs> Good one. That's okay. Um, hey, John, thank you so much. It's great to hear you. And my question is, um, how would, would you say that it's now different for you from before and, you know, like, how is it different from just being in OA? And did something shift or change? And was it this meeting? And how did and how did that work for you? Well, that's a good question. I always joke sometimes that uh, I was in two different OAs over the years. And, of course, there is only one OA. There was two different Johns. The, the, the first John went, uh, saw uh, the program as being meetings. You know, it was about meetings, it was about going to meetings, and it was about getting a chance to talk about myself, because that was my favorite subject. And, um, and, and, and I also understand that to a certain extent. You know, there's this wonderful thing that happens when you come into your first meeting, and you hear people talking about things you thought you were the only person on earth who did, you know. Um, and yet they're talking about it, and they're laughing about it, and there's this wonderful feeling of identification of camaraderie and realizing your home. And that's a wonderful thing. Now, the thing is, um, 
and, and in the beginning, maybe you do talk about yourself and talk about the things because it helps get it out. But the thing is, at some point, I I didn't do the next step, which was to get into the steps well, to get into the big book really, and really work on working the steps with with my food. I had been sober. I mean, I've been sober 35 years, but in a lot of ways, I I I did an initial fourth step in that other program, but never really did much more. I maybe did a few amends, but. This program requires us to work, in my opinion, a lot harder because the food is there all the time. And if we don't make these changes, we're not going to stay abstinent. And and so the first time around, uh, I was coming and I was talking about myself and my, all my problems and woe was me. And I never made that curve into then starting to work on the steps. I always, you know, I heard somebody say once, I loved it, that she was in program two different times. The first one didn't work, the second one did. And he said, in the first one I worked the tool, the second one I worked the steps. And and it was sort of true with me too, is that I I never made that turn to then pivot into the steps and into getting into real recovery. I just sat at meetings talking about myself and my problems. And you know, nothing changes if nothing changes. And you know, and that's the thing is I, I see people today. We have people in my our meetings and that are that way, that they're um all they do is come to meetings and talk about their problems, but they're not working the steps or anything like that. And um if that worked, I'd be fine. I have no ideological uh, thing with it. But when I see those people, they're sharing about the same problems today that they were sharing about seven years ago because they're not making the changes. And that's, by the way, I just want to mention, this is like a personal thing. One of the things I love about a vision for you is, to me, this is the way the meetings are supposed to be. People will talk about themselves at a meeting, but it will be in reference to whatever has just been read in the big book, and it's always positive stuff. And and my buddy Harlan and I talk about, we, we've uh, hopefully vision for you is going to change the way people see meetings around the country, because a lot of places, because I... When I was a comic, I would go all over the country and I'd go to these different meetings and in a lot of places, all these people have ever known were these group therapy type of meetings. And instead of working on having more of a big book oriented thing, even big book meetings I've seen in a lot of places, people will read, a, you know, maybe I'll read a chapter from the big book or a couple of pages from the big book, but then sharing opens up and it's just everybody back to talking about themselves. And not even referencing what was talked about in the big book. And what the big book is about is is talking about this stuff. And then how do I use this to then change my life so that I I, I can get better? And that's what's changed in me now is is I've worked through steps and I keep talking about steps. And, and you know I don't actually share that much meetings anymore. Uh, if I share, it's something maybe that happened in my life that I want to then say. And this is how I got through it absently. When I hear people talk about meetings saying, oh, positive pitches only, I say I can hear the most gnarly things spoken about about somebody and horrible thing they're going through if it ends with, but I didn't eat over it. That's a positive pitch. You know, when I hear people talk about all this stuff and then they end and say, well, and I binged over it, you know, part of me goes, well, where's this experience, strength, and hope there? I know how to do that. We all know how to do that. And, and, and so for me, the thing that really changed is I see this program differently. It's not about coming in uh, to just talk about myself. I had an old sponsor who used to say, nobody learned anything by talking. You learn from listening. 
And I do, and I come in and I listen. And one of the things I'll hear, I love the phrase, keep coming to meetings so you can hear what happens to people who stop going to meetings. You know, I hear people having problems, and it helps keep it green in me. Because the lady I know once said, uh, I'm not a slow learner, I'm a quick forgetter. And that's what we tend to be in OA. We tend to be quick forgetters of how bad it was. And so that's what's changed. I work the steps today, not the tool. Thanks, Tara Kay, for the question. Our final question this morning comes from Eddie C. Good morning, and I, I apologize. I must have not heard the no uh, problem. Speaker, uh, questioner. Um, John, I, I was um, listening to your um, talk this morning, and I heard a lot about acceptance, which I really, you know, you talk about how nothing in God's world happens by mistake, and I really, you know, felt like I needed to be here this morning. Um, I kind of got on late because I've lost track of the time, but thank God that I did. But um, I've been going through um, a rough patch lately. Um, my husband was diagnosed with prostate cancer in, in October, and um, this past February, I've been diagnosed with breast cancer. So, you know, we've been kind of having our our rough moments here. But thank God um, the food is not calling to me. Um, so that 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 is a good thing. But it's it's been rough, and um, I. You mentioned the story about acceptance, which is um, one of my favorite stories in the book. I, I love that story. I go to it frequently. But I, I guess what I'm saying is, um, or I'm asking you, is is there, and I feel like maybe there's other things I should be looking to do, or I, I don't know. I'm looking, I guess, for maybe some suggestions of what I could do to, you know, um, strengthen, you know, what I'm doing uh, now so that, you, like you were just talking about, you know, that, and I can make the statement someday down the road, and I did need over it. Right. Well, yeah, well, that's a, you know, it's a good point. And, and by the way, you know, hearing this kind of thing helps everybody when you share that kind of thing, because I'm a great believer in this concept of a group strength. When people get up and say, hey, I'm going through cancer and I didn't need over it, it it bolsters all of us because all of a sudden when I'm thinking of something I'm going through, I can go, hey, you know what, Eddie, going through cancer, didn't eat over it. Is what I'm going through, you know, anywhere near as bad? No, I don't have to eat over it. And that's the other thing. I mean, somebody posted something this morning on a board about, you know, this is going on, this is going over, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, and because of that, I want to eat. And I go, no, you want to eat because you're a compulsive eater. Because whatever you're going through has nothing to do with eating. And if I went on another board that had to do with compulsive gambling and I read the same thing, and, and you know, then the person would have added, but, you know, and, and as a result, I want to gamble, you know, and, and, and to realize that, you know, obviously you're doing a great job on food is not the answer. But then it becomes about enlarging your spiritual condition because, especially when you're going through really tough times like this, that, again, that why thing wants to come up, you know? Why, you know, and, and, um, and again, it, 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 for me, it, 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 it accomplishes nothing other than frustrating me. And instead saying, well, I, I have to, um, I, uh, you know, uh, I just have to deal with the next indicated step, as they say in program. You know, how am I going to deal with this? What am I going to do? Because, the the sort of like the, the you know that phrase in the big book morbid reflection uh, that will only spin me down and it won't help in the long run because you know you're going to have a full time job taking care of your problem and to 
to then have to juggle two different problems will only make it worse. And it's not going to make you feel any better. And the idea of trying to find a better concept of a higher power to help you with these acceptance things, you know, it's not always easy. You know, the acceptance stuff is, you know, it tends to be easier when the things aren't as tough to have to accept. And, and, And yet, you know, it's about realizing that there is a higher power and everything's happening the way it's supposed to and and trying to find some peace in that well thy will not mine be done i'll do my part i gotta you know do my part of rowing the boat but i i let go of the results and and to trying and and keep something of a positive attitude about it you know and and because like i said what the program all these things do is help me get through things so that I'm not the one all in agitation, my stomach acid churning up is a phrase I always love to say, uh, and I can deal with the next indicated action. And it's it's not easy for for anybody to say to somebody who's going through cancer and having a husband who's going through cancer uh, things. And, and then the other thing is to just, in my opinion, we have to be careful sometimes when we read these big book, the big book, and we and we I mentioned it earlier about I wanted to override my humanity and say, well, the big book says I should feel this way, therefore I should I feel this way. Well, you know, you're a human being and you're going to feel the way you feel. And I've had to learn a long time ago that sometimes my feelings come out um, as a five-year-old. And I've got to let my little five-year-old, you know, kick uh, and stamp his feet and get a chance to have his say. And then my inner, and I hate to sound with this kind of thing, but my inner adult, my inner program person who's gone through the steps can then say to my little five-year-old that, that's being a human, well, it's okay. It's going to be all right. Uh, yes, it's, yeah, it's absolutely fine to have those feelings, but now what are we, how can we change them? Because one of the things I tried to do, and I mentioned it, you know, I, I, went, through, I went through a period, I don't know if you guys remember that old um, commercial, uh, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Well, I used to joke that I went through a time when I was newly absent back east. I, I used to say uh, it was like I'm not an old timer, but I play one at meetings, you know. And um, of, of, you know, when something came up, I'd be like the Sponsortron 2000. Oh, this is happening. Therefore, I'll tell you. Oh, you should write about it. Or oh, you should pray about it. Well, the great thing about being out here in Los Angeles and being around people with 10, 20, 30, 40 years of absence—I mean, a lot of them is they get up and they're talking and they're human beings. They're not trying to be, you know, a paradise. They'll talk about going through something and totally blowing their cool and things like that, but then talking about how the program taught them how they could take care of that and change things. And so for me, acknowledging the things that are going on and being a human uh, being and acknowledging the human parts of that, that A, wow, cancer's scary and I've got to deal with that. and I'm a compulsive eater, so this, the fear makes me want to go eat and do other things as a way, if nothing else, to just get some diversion, to, to have another problem other than cancer to think about for a while. The trouble is, is that, that that one can be as devastating, if not more. And so, you know, the idea of trying to get better in touch with a higher power and, and to sort of, you know, do some of those readings. I, I mean, I love some of the readings that are... That, that are out there, uh, you know, that are both either OA reading or AA reading. Um, search for Serenity in AA. And, and there's a couple others that are non-program uh, things that I like, too. 
that will, and, and to keep reading them on a daily basis. One of the things I love about daily readers is you pick it up and you read something you wouldn't have thought to think about uh, uh, when you go to read it. And then sometime during the day, invariably, something happens that harkens you back to the thing you read in the morning, and it very often helps you get through whatever is going on. So hang in there, hold on to the program with both hands, and, and realize that the, the, that the real serenity involves being clear of, of all of my, my drugs so that I can get in touch with a higher power. Because otherwise, you know, food has become the higher power, and it's going to be between me and the real higher power. I hope that helps. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks, Eddie, for the question. John, thank you so much for your beautiful and insightful presentation this morning. And you're always a lot of fun to hang out with. So thank you so much. You've been so helpful. We're going to close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.